Hi, this is Gillian from Rest Reflections. Welcome to this episode of At Work, our fortnightly podcast on all things inequality, injustice and oppression. And we try very hard to focus on work. I would like to, as I often do, invite your queries, your questions, your dilemmas by getting in touch via email using atwork at racereflections.co.uk or contact at racereflections.co.uk. I have been away, but I am back now for a new episode. I'm not going to answer any question for this particular episode because I've had something on my mind over the past few days that I want to attempt to use on. I'm not sure whether I'm going to be able to make the link to the workplace, but I'm going to try to do so. And I guess what I want to talk about is black people in particular, brown people to a lesser degree, perhaps you could even say black women and brown women more specifically, relationship with pain. And when we talk about pain, of course, we're also talking about help seeking and associated issues to do with access to, say, health services, for example. But I'm going to try to see whether there is some implication that might be helpful for us to consider in relation to the workplace. So that's what we're doing. We are going to be thinking about pain. So a little bit of a personal disclosure, I've shared that on social media. My baby sister, and I have loads of baby sisters. In fact, I have loads of sisters. I'm somewhere in the middle. And one of my baby sister fairly recently became seriously unwell. In fact, she almost died due to an ectopic pregnancy that turned into very serious internal bleeding and cardiac arrest. So we were lucky that she was successfully resuscitated after her heart stopping beating three times. And so you might be thinking, what does that have to do with pain? Well, what I want to think about and what I've been thinking about, I think over the past um, few days because of that experience and that got me thinking about my own relationship with pain and with help seeking is that after she was discharged, she was discharged fairly I'd say quite rapidly because she was making such good progress and because the progress that she was making was astounding doctors, essentially. And they were saying, well, essentially, you should still be in a wheelchair, you shouldn't be able to walk and aid it and should be resting. And the girl was walking around pretending that she hadn't been on the brink of death. So I had a conversation with her and so we discussed you know, the situation she was in. And I don't want to give too much information. I think I've already revealed a lot about her. But suffice to say that she felt great. She was really emboldened in her having survived and kind of wore as a badge of honour the fact that she had surprised the medics in terms of how well she was doing. That concerned me and that, as I said, made me think about my relationship with pain or the black woman's relationship with pain, marginalized women, perhaps by extensions, relationship with pain and how we have come to internalize some pretty toxic 
discourses, narratives, expectation about what it means to be strong, about what it means to be self-reliant, about therefore what it means to rely on other, and by extension, whether we allow ourselves to seek help, support, rest, attend to our pain and suffering when required. Now, I don't want to kind of base this whole episode on my system, my experience, my reflection, because that would be unfair. I would be individualizing something that is uh, well established and well documented and well reflected, if I can say that, phenomenon, that of the strong black woman. So I'm not going to go into that. You know, people have been writing, talking, speaking about that for decades. But I guess what really got me introspective, so to speak, week is that sense of perhaps not necessarily knowing how else to be in the world because the world does not necessarily allow you to be vulnerable and so therefore not necessarily having learned to be vulnerable and to allow oneself to sit with that vulnerability. Now I don't want to make that an additional pathology or an additional stick that can be used to beat black women, brown women, marginalized women on the head with. That's not the point of this episode and that's certainly not what I want to do today. But nonetheless, I do think that there is something quite important in terms of the implications of that say, very high, it appears, even though, again, the evidence on that is mitigated when it comes to neurobiological stuff and when it comes to health research as to whether we really do have a higher pain threshold. Uh, The evidence points that actually we don't, contrary to, to popular belief. In fact, it might well be that we are more sensitive to pain. So this is what the evidence suggests. But nonetheless, in terms of how we behave in society and how we behave in the world, we often cope and we are often expected to cope with such high level of pain, of distress, of discomfort that are on appraisal of maybe the dangers and the risk that we might be facing become skewed. And so there are links, I think, to be made in relation to how late we can present when it comes to health services. And so this is also finding that is consistent regardless of the kind of services that exist, so whether payment is required at the point of access or whether payment is required by way of, say, monthly deduction or contribution. We do know that those findings have been found in various nations, in the UK, in the United States and in other countries where the data is collected. And so the pattern is that black people generally, brown people to a less extent, tend to present the services when their condition is much more advanced. I know that we all have, and I'm talking to black people directly here, we have all, I'm pretty sure, lost someone in our family due to a late diagnosis of some kind. 
I've lost at least, at least I would say one person to a late cancer diagnosis, despite there being a lot of symptoms, lot of distress, lot of pain, but the person not seeking support sufficiently on time. Now, of course, we don't know whether they would have survived had they presented to services earlier, but we do know that, of course, when it comes to cancer, early diagnosis is very significantly associated with positive outcomes. So that is a serious problem, particularly because we do know that outcomes when it comes to cancer diagnosis in black groups tend to be the lowest. Now, what I'm not trying to say is that the only reason why we have the outcomes that we have is because we have a relationship with pain and suffering that needs to be thought about. And so therefore to shift the gaze and to shift the blame, you could even say onto black people. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that it is a factor and that factor itself is also a function of misogynoir, it's a function of racism, is a function of intergenerational trauma and difficult relationship with health services and issues to do with distrust and mistrust, for example. So all that is in the picture. But what I'm talking about pain, so I'm focusing on pain as being also part of the equation. So yes, that fairly difficult experience, fairly recent experience, get me thinking about what I do with my own pain and whether I'm allowed or whether I'm allowing myself, maybe it's both. In fact, it is both. Whether I'm allowing myself to stop and to actually say, you know what, I'm in pain and I need to do something about that pain, which would get us into issues to do with self-compassion, for example, and whether the world around me allow or can see when I am in pain or can see when other black women are in pain and need support. Now, all the evidence that we have tend to suggest that black women generally, when it comes to mental health services in particular, need to present to their GP on multiple occasions and sometimes present with higher level of distress before they are taken seriously and maybe referred, say, to a counselling, which is not necessarily the case when it comes to white women. So we do know that this is something that we also have to internalise because the world simply refuses to acknowledge and to recognise our pain, partly because recognising that pain would mean recognising the structures and the history that make it a living reality. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, that's sad, or well, yes, makes sense, or yes, we know, but what are the implications for the workplace? And what are the implications for kind of everyday workings of anti-blackness or misogynoir or racism in the workplace? Let me suggest at least two, possibly three, and it is often when there is a conflict. So there is a conflict, say, between a black woman or black 
person and there is a conflict with a white person. So those two people are in conflict. So maybe management have to step in to take some action to perhaps mediate or to find some kind of resolution in relation to the dispute. Now, what we will find certainly more often than not is that the pain, the distress that has been caused to the white person is going to be seen, is going to be acknowledged, is going to be centered. That again, there's nothing new there. But what is perhaps not often done is had that link as to construction, say colonial construction, that black people, um, brown people are immune to pain. Black people, particularly African descended people more than brown people, are immune to pain. And so if that is still floating in our, say, collective imagination, say unconscious, it means that how we are going to respond to a black person that is in distress or that is stressed in the workplace is going to be very different to the way that we might respond to other people, particularly people who are racialized as, as white. And I've seen that and I've experienced that myself, whereby perhaps when someone shows signs of distress or signs of vulnerability, they are seen as being inauthentic or perhaps behaving in a way that is contrived if not manipulative, so that kind of attracts a suspicion onto the authenticity or the genuineness of the expression of, say, distress or, or, or sadness. And I see that all the time. And in part, it's because there is still something that disrupts us when it comes to certain bodies and the formation that we have around their presumed strength. So there's that. It is also, of course, something that has a lot to do with so-called white fragility and the centering of whiteness effectively whenever there is a crisis. So it's another way to maintain the status quo. So that is one way to be on the lookout for. But the other side of that, and that is related to the first point, is that if we internalize the idea that we must be strong, that we can't show vulnerability, we're not going to be trusted with our vulnerability, there's not going to be no one around to hold us and to care for us or to cater to our needs, then it may well be that we present a certain way when we are actually distressed. And so people might not read us as easily as they could read other people. Now, for example, in the example of my sister that I just gave, she was walking around and, and doing this, that and the other. I knew that, obviously, and I don't have to be a sister to know that she was in distress. She was highly stressed. Nobody can be on the brink of death on three occasions and not be affected one way or the other. You know, let's just keep it real. We are all human beings. I mean, one thing that we fear the most, the majority of us, is dying and to be at risk of dying and to be at risk of dying under such pain is bound to have had some stressful, if not traumatic impact. Now, if we bear that in mind, right, not even taking a more personal and a more compassionate kind of stance, it's simply to say, hey, this experience is likely to create some distress in people. That person is not reacting or acting in a way that is consistent with our expectation. And so what's going on and to be curious around that. And so to approach, so that's when, you know, compassion comes into play, to approach the person and maybe think together about, you know, space, support, care, or even just a conversation that they might need 
to be able to better look after themselves, because this is what I'm talking about here, better looking after oneself. It's not about, you know, just opening the floodgate of tearfulness in the workplace, whatever. But there is something about how people can enact or perform or simply do self-care when they are refusing to connect or they're not able or they find it difficult for various reasons to connect with their vulnerability. So one thing about whose feelings, whose distress is seen, but also the flip side of that is that whether it can be easily seen. And if it's not easily seen, whether we can simply afford sufficient humanity in black and brown people who find themselves in situations that we know, you know, common sense will dictate that there would be difficult experiences. So therefore presume that they are difficult experiences rather than simply stuffing yourself at what appear on surface level and think that if the person is not showing any sign of distress, that means that there is no distress. You know, I really want to stress that simply because someone is not showing sign of distress, it doesn't mean that there is no distress. Simply because someone is not showing or rather sharing their distress or denying even any distress doesn't mean that there is no distress that is going on. And so, yes, I want to leave you with that. And so some question for you to consider as to whether you take sufficient account of those stereotypes, of those social expectations, of those even internalization when it comes to pain, when it comes to strength, when it comes to self-reliance, when it comes to attending to some of the conflicts that might be happening in the workplace when it comes to the support that might be offered or might not be offered to particular individuals. And I want to be clear that I am definitely, as myself as a Black woman, I'm definitely not placing myself above anyone on that front. I have also internalized things to do with social discourses, to do with my own personal history, to do with just life. So I'm not saying that, that I'm better than the average Black woman, but I am conscious that I think most of us to some degree, because this has been a social discourse that has spanned centuries, have had to grapple with strength and vulnerability and what it means for us and whether we can allow ourselves to connect with both, actually. This is really the crux of it, I think, that allow ourselves to connect to both and also be given the allowance, the space to be both to be strong because necessarily we have to be strong to just exist, but equally to not have that strength manipulated or weaponized so that our vulnerability and so therefore our humanity can be denied. Okay, I have no idea whether I've added anything of value, anything that might be new, anything that might be useful to employees, employers, uh, colleagues. But that is it for me today. So that was Ghislaine for Rest Reflection. Thank you very much for listening to my musing, which was, as usual, unscripted. And as usual, I want to say, please take care.